If you have a Bible, I hope you do, I invite you to turn them to John chapter 14. And uh, we're going to just look at three verses this morning. I'm actually going to read down through verse 7, though, because we're going to put these two together over the next couple of weeks. Let's hear the word of the Lord together. Let, us n- let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. And if there were not so, I would not have told you that I would go to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again, I will take you to myself. That is where I am, that where I am, you may also be, and you also know that the way where I am going. And so Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you're going, and how can we know the way? And Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you, if, you had known, if you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you know him, and you have seen him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God, Thanks be to God indeed. You may have a seat. I, uh, I'm glad everyone's here this morning. We, uh, you know, we're kind of sitting here after this day, day after Christmas and trying to kind of think all of us are trying to get our bearings back, but yet I'm kind of still in Christmas mode. And I hope that you've had this season the last couple of days to really make merry and enjoy your festivities with your family. And um, that's certainly a, a hope that we have for each of our people here, that, that it's the season we fill with lots of joy. Ours will continue as we leave here this afternoon and head east to the homeland. The, 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 the way I tell Amanda is the state that begat all states in Virginia. And uh, love going up and spending some time up there. We don't get up there often anymore, but we're going to go up and spend some time there. And, and, and despite of this untimely weather, by the way, 70 degrees is just wrong on Christmas. Um, but uh, nonetheless, I hope to still don some type of sweater and maybe a handful of eggnog. All right, we're holding some eggnog there. And those of you who don't like eggnog, just keep it to yourself. Um, most of us love Christmas in here. All of us love Christmas, I think, in some way. I mean, there's, I think most of us will at least have some sense of, like, we, we have expectation of what it can be, and then we kind of hit the after Christmas mode, and it kind of leaves us a little bit down, right? Because it's like, oh, that's over with now, and now we got to look at the rest of the year, and we've got to wait another 11 months before we get back into Christmas mode. And, and we like Christmas because we, we, like for me particularly, I love like those Christmas songs like White Christmas, right? Bing's White Christmas or, or, or Burl's uh, a Holly, Have a Holly Jolly Christmas. That first uh, stanza is one of my favorites, right? So have a Holly Jolly Christmas. It's the best time of the year. I don't know if there will be snow, although I hope it will be, um, but have a cup of cheer. It just kind of warms you up inside if you really think about it, um, regardless if it's Christian or not, there's something about it that just kind of makes you go, oh, man. And then you come to that Christmas, and you're like, oh, man, there's the rest of the year coming, and what am I going to do now? And the reality is, is that that's, that's the hope of the Christian, is that it's not, not just a momentary feeling that we produce every year uh, in this Christmas festivities, but that we are keenly aware as Christians um, that, that many of us, all of us to some degree, will face circumstances this next year, or even facing circumstances presently, that leave us more blue than jolly, and then we have to come back to real life. We have to come back to looking at what life is really once the tinsel's taken down and the, and the lights are taken down, the trees sitting in the woods like in our house, behind our house right now, right? Like, that's, like you have to still face those things at some point. 
And so many of us, maybe, again, wherever you are this year, or maybe you looked into the year to come, like you wonder, is it okay for some of us to both have joy and, and, and be jolly at Christmas, right? But also still be able to face the realities of what life actually is, or face realities as, as you and I have experienced them, the, the, the circumstances the Lord has providentially allowed into our, our lives. And, and I believe, especially as we look at this, these first three verses in chapter 14 today, I believe that's a profound yes. We can both be joyful as Christians all year round. We can enjoy all that Christmas has because we have something to be joyful about. But we can also still very much um, not ignore the troubledness of life, the troubled hearts that we tend to have in life. In fact, I would say this much. I think only Christians can do this. I think only Christians can face the rest of this year with joy of the year to come with joy, but also sadness. I think the two are together. I don't think that it can be separated. I don't think you can really understand joy without the suffering. I don't think you can understand joy without the sadness. And I think there's something that only the Christian can enter into those two seemingly diametric realms, opposed realms, and we can actually enter into that together and face it together as God's people. And so that's what we're going to see here this morning in these first verses is what do we do with a troubled heart? What is the remedies for a troubled heart? How do we find, as we see in Burl's song, have a cup of cheer? Is there really a cup of cheer that you and I can drink deeply of throughout the rest of the year that is lasting, fulfilling, and brings peace and joy and hope as we've been celebrating the last few weeks? So if I were to summarize the summer sermon in one sentence, it would be, even as we face drinking the bitter cup of a troubled heart, which I think, again, is very common to all of us, Christ invites us, his people, into a deeper faith and hope for heaven to cheer our hearts until he returns. That's what we have that others don't have. We have deeper faith and a hope of heaven that can cheer our hearts until Jesus' return. And we see all of that here in this text, just in three verses this morning. And so I've titled the sermon, Hope for the Troubled Heart, or Healing for the Troubled Heart heart. I want to look at three things from this text. You can kind of see them in my summary, right? I want to look at the bitter cup of troubled hearts. And then I want to look at the remedies for the troubled heart. And then I want to look at the very end, the cheer that you and I can drink of until he, Jesus, returns to overcome everything that troubles our hearts. Okay, so let's look at those three things together, right? The bitter cup of a troubled heart is the first thing we see here in verse 1. Let not your hearts be troubled. So here's what Jesus knows is happening in his disciples. They have faced um, some very difficult realities. They have followed Jesus now for three years in his ministry. They have seen his ministry continually be rejected, resisted. They have seen countless threats of arrest and even death, not just for Jesus, but those who are associated with Jesus. They have now seen, just in the last few hours, the betrayal of a dear brother who now has turned from Christ, turned from the mission, and now is betraying Christ and now betraying them. And then on top of that, their Savior's talking about his death. All of that is way more than they can bear. Way more than their hearts and their minds can like process in these moments. And Jesus is not unaware of that reality. And in fact, Jesus has hope for them in the midst of that reality. He says, let not your hearts be troubled. And the reason we want to just zero in on that, just those first few words, is that troubled hearts are common. 
They're not just for some people who suffer more than others. Like all of us are given different levels, different seasons, different um, providences of, of weakness and of troubled times and circumstances. There, it's not something that's uncommon to any one of us in here. Now, the wonderful thing about this is that when one of us or some of us are facing some of those troubled times and troubled hearts and troubled experiences, we have the rest of us who are maybe not experiencing those things to help walk along with us and care for one another in the midst of those troubling times. But troubling hearts is not something that's unique to one particular person over the other. Like, that's something that I think is, um, we've got to come to, like, realization about. Like, it's, it comes in different shapes and forms and ways and fashions and degrees. And when it comes, let's just be honest, it, it can feel crippling. It can even feel like our faith is weak and maybe not may not actually make it through but but what i want us to think about as we look at the reality of this of this bitter cup of troubling heart or troubled hearts is that what if we need to re-examine what we think about when it comes to feeling and experiencing these troubles what if in the troubles there's actually grace what if in the troubles it's God subtly reminding us of our ever-increasing need of his mercies and his assurances in this life as we wait until his return. See, the gospel, friends, is much richer and it's much more nuanced and much more beautiful and much more far-reaching than any of us can imagine. It's more than sometimes this like almost reductionistic, one-note, triumphal kind of gospel note that we kind of preach sometimes. Again, not that that's a wrong thing, right? But I think sometimes that's all we think we can offer people when they're in times of distress. And I, and I see this sometimes in myself. I see this sometimes in, uh, among us, among other believers. When they find friends in difficult times, we just want to make them feel better. We just want them to get better. We just want to offer them just answers. We want to offer them just truth bombs. We don't offer them a triumphalistic gospel. And there's nothing wrong with those things as part of the answer, but the gospel is way more than that. It is a message of a gospel of a God who condescends to his people, comes into our, like we talked about this at Christmas Eve service, comes into our very messy, troubling life, and it, it incarnates with us. This is our God. That's part of the gospel, too. Gospel is not just Jesus dies on the cross for your sins and then is resurrected. It is that this is a God who comes into the mess with us and then makes that work happen. And this is something that I think we sometimes don't press into as far as like being gospel-centered, right? But there's so many... I just want to talk for a minute, though, like, as we understand that reality, that, that where does our trouble come from? Like, where does this trouble come from? Wait, 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 I'll say, again, probably easy, right? The Sunday school answer, it comes from sin. Of course it comes from sin. But sin can have all kinds of deep effects on us and come from different places. It can come from inward causes, right? Anxieties, angers, pains, hurts, loneliness. Um, they can come from... And, and when we look at those anxieties and those gifts and those lonelinesses and whatever else, like I think sometimes we think those things as immediately wrong. Like if I feel lonely, 
that means ultimately something's wrong with me. Or if I feel angry, that means there's always something wrong with me or someone else. And that, to some degree, that's right. But it's actually, again, just like the troubling times are gifts from God's his grace, so are these things because they're gifts to us to say, hey, we need something that we can't provide for ourselves. So there's inward realities of our trouble. There's the outward causes. We would all can point to numerous of those, right? The cultural, political stressors. They're constant in the human experience. There's the the economic instability that many of us will face or worried about. Do I have enough money to make it to next week? Do I have enough money to make it to next month? Will I have enough money to retire and, and, and survive at the end of my life? There's those, of course, recently, right? Just abundance of concern about our health. And again, all of those are real, fundamental concerns that all of us will wrestle with in various ways. And it, and it takes more than just a one-note gospel to enter into those things with people and with each other. It can come down to relational breakdowns. That could be another external issue. When the sudden loss of a friendship, a sudden, sudden tension in a, in a key relationship in your life, or maybe it's a loss of a relationship or a loss of a, a loved one that will cause some of these troubling times for us. At the end of the day, what drives the trouble usually is one of two things. It's either driven by what we love most. See, when, we tr when we're troubled, something that we love is threatened. And you can name, you can fill in that blank any way you want to, but there's usually something in our lives that's threatened. Whether it's a relationship, whether it's, again, financial stability, it can be, it can be threatened in some ways, right? But it's not just driven by what we love, it's also controlled by what we fear. Those are the things that typically make things troubling for us, because fears make us feel out of control. Fears make us realize, or help but make us realize that, man, I don't have it all together. So when we think about troubling hearts, let's make sure that we're honest with ourselves about this reality, and that Troubling hearts are not always just bad things. They can be very, very intently good things, grace things. Because they show us something about ourselves. They show us things about our circumstances. And it allows us to actually experience grace in a much more profound way. And this is, and this is what I want to do before I move into that second point is to kind of think about, so then what does a Christian do with troubling times? I have five things, five realities that, that should enshroud God's people as we drink this bitter cup of troubled times. One is that the, holy, uh, the holiest of saints will find that this world, in this world a veil of tears. We don't have to ignore that. We are people living in a land of suffering. We are living, why? Because sin has created suffering. We know this. And we don't have to try to numb that suffering. We don't have to try to numb that darkness. We don't have to try to numb that blue, those blue experiences of our life. The second thing a Christian should understand and should embody as we look at our troubled times is that we don't fear the bitter experiences of life, but we are free to grieve in them. Like This is one of the things I think, again, uh, I was talking to some friends recently about how to care for people when they're going through these times. And one of the things that is a good counsel, y'all probably, y'all know, some of you guys know, his name is Todd Warmers. 
he's a pastor on the other side of town, he's a counselor too, he said, never, ever hug a person who's crying. That sounds so counterintuitive to us. He says, because the hug is more about you trying to feel better than rather than them. They invite you to hug them, sure. But he goes, don't hug a person who's crying because what you're trying, you're saying to them is that your crying is making them uncomfortable and you need to stop. The point is, is that that might be counterintuitive to how we think about things. You can invite, you can ask them, hey, is it okay if I hold your hand? Is it okay if I put my arm around you? Let them invite you into that. But be careful that what you do in their grief and their pain is that you're trying to stop it because it's making you uncomfortable. Right? Christ didn't just come into our lives and condescend from God just to fix our stuff, which he does. He comes into our lives to be his presence in the midst of all of that stuff. It's really, again, counterintuitive to how we actually feel about this. So, First thing the Holy Saints that we understand the world is a veil of tears. We understand the bitter experiences of life and we're free to grieve in them. The third thing that we would do in light of these troubling experiences is that, was that, is that we don't merely use the gospel as an escape for our troubled heart. Again, that goes back to what I've been saying. Like, the gospel is way more than one note. It has so many more dimensions to it so that you and I might offer more complete help and assurance and comfort to people. Third, fourth thing is then we would learn to take refuge in the condescension of God through his son who comes into the bitterness of our lives. This is how we deal with our troubling times. And then last, we wait eager, with eager expectation that one day Jesus is coming back and the full consummation of all sin and death and, and evil and brokenness is going to be over. Wherever we fail to offer Full, full comfort in this time will not fail when Jesus returns. And so that's the thing that we want to think about first in this first verse is it's just this idea that, like, let not your hearts be troubled. Jesus is not allowing them to just let their hearts go unchecked. He's actually saying, no, you can face these troubles. You can face this very situation. You can look at it. You can grieve it. You can feel it. And they're real for you. But then he doesn't just leave them with, don't, hey, don't feel this way. He actually offers them two remedies for their troubled hearts. Look at verses, the end of verse 1 through verse 2. It says, believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms, and if, I, and if it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? So what Jesus is saying there is he's giving them two wonderful remedies. I love what J.C. Ryle says as it relates to this, right? God does now in the midst of our troubled hearts presently provide precious remedies for them. It's not something we're just waiting for, but there are actually things that are remedies right now. There are things that, go in, that, are, that are given to us in this moment, and he gives us two, I think, right here in this text. One is the, the assurance of faith. He says, believe in God, believe also in me. Now that word, that little phrase there is a very interesting little phrase because it's both an indicative and an imperative in the Greek, okay? And let me try to unpack that for you. It feels like it's an imperative. Believe in God, believe also in me. It is indeed that. 
but it's, it's an, an indicative first. So believe in God is the indicative, meaning it's a state of fact. You have trusted in this God. He is a fact in your life. He is a fact that he is the creator of the universe. It is a fact that he has revealed himself to you. It is a fact that he has given you his precious promises. It's a matter of fact. That's what an indicative is. But it's not just an indicative. It's not just giving someone a truth bomb. But it's also calling them, as Jesus is doing, to believe in it more. Believe also in me. That's the imperative aspect of it. It's the, it's what Jesus is saying is it's a matter of necessity for you, he's talking to his disciples, a matter of necessity that you, you believe in an ongoing way. This is what God and what Jesus is trying to get his disciples. The first remedy is to continue to believe. The first remedy is to continue to have faith. The first remedy is that, that, that faith is the only sure medicine for a troubled heart. And so what Christ is saying to his disciples, and I think by nature, by converse to us this morning, is that, that we're to believe even more thoroughly every day. That we are to trust more entirely every day. Forgive my grammar, it may not be right there. Okay, so grammar please go off somewhere else, all right? We are to rest in him more unreservedly every day. See, what Jesus knows about them is that faith must be impressed upon the saint, must be impressed upon his people as a daily discipline. Every one of those disciples who were sitting at that table with Jesus believed him, otherwise they wouldn't be there. But Jesus was pushing them past the indicative, right? Just the truth bomb truth. Oh, you believe in God, great. No, 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 no. You gotta lean into that. You gotta start putting you know, your weight on it. It's a, that's what faith is in the Christian life. It's not just a, um, it's not just an intuition, as I said um, on, on Friday night. No, your faith is the thing in which you lean on. And all of us have degrees of faith and it comes and goes, right? Some of us are inclined to a weaker faith and some of us are inclined to a stronger faith. And this can be in different seasons of our life. Again, I love what J.C. Ryle says about this. He goes, weak faith is enough to give a man saving interest in Christ. Praise God. But... A weak faith will not give him comfort as much as a growing and strong faith. So what Jesus is saying, look, keep trusting, even in the weakness of your present circumstances. But if you want comfort, you've got to continue to press into the belief. You've got to keep pressing into the faith. That's the only way your troubled heart finds comfort. Faith must be cultivated. Isaiah 26.3 says, You keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you. Why? Because he trusts in you. So this first remedy to a troubled heart is a looking back, as it were. It's a, it's a, it's a constant looking back at, for us at least, on this side of the cross, looking back at the cross of Christ and his resurrection for our comfort. That's what faith is. It's constantly looking back at what's been accomplished in Christ. Constantly looking back at what he has accomplished and what he will accomplish when he returns. It's a daily exercise of faith that is to be commended to all believers of all times and all places. But again, there's a second remedy. 
in my father's house are many rooms. The second remedy is the comfort of heaven. This is something that the Christian has, again, uniquely because we have an assurance that there is a place that's being prepared for us, is what Jesus says here in the rest of these verses. This idea of Father's house is heaven. Home, it's the home of, of Christ. It's the home of true Christians. You've heard the statement, home is where the heart is. I think that's only true because of where the ultimate home is. Heaven with, with Christ, with God. That's where we find home. Why? Because home, and every one of us knows this, even if we had a messed up childhood of some sort, everyone knows that home is where we go because that's where we feel loved for our own sakes, not for what we pr provide, not for what we give, not for what we possess, not for what we do, but you're loved because you're just, you're part of the family. Like you love your children here this morning, parents. For no other reason, at least this is what you should be loving them for, for no other reason than just they're your children. God loves you for no other reason than the fact that you're his children. Because he set his affections upon you. This is home. And this is home where we are never forgotten. And where we're always welcome. So the remedy of faith and heaven are integral to your comfort in troubling times. Because all of us, in the midst of our troubling times, struggle to know how to compute all those troubles and therefore feel alienated, feel alone. But here Christ says, you're not alone. Look at what I've accomplished for you on the cross. Look back and look forward to what I'm going to give you and provide for you in the future. A home. A home where you as I've already said, are loved not for your gifts and possessions, but for your own sake. A place where you'll never be forgotten and you're always welcome. That's what heaven is. That's what true home is for the believer. But what makes heaven more superior than, say, your home or my home? Well, I think we can all say the infinitely <laughs> infinite things, right? But, but I think the thing that comes to my mind as I was thinking about this text was Hebrews chapter 13. For here we have no lasting city, but we seek a city that is to come. In other words, what Hebrews, the author of Hebrews is trying to get us to is that we can look for home here and we can try to make comfort happen here, but there is nothing here that's lasting that will bring us true home. But no, we're looking for a city that will, has no end. This is what the city that Abraham was looking for. If you go back to Hebrews chapter 11, verse 10, it says Abraham was looking forward to the city that was that has foundations whose designer and builder is God. When you think back to the promises of God to Abraham, that covenant that he cut with Abraham, you, you and I need to recognize that what Abraham's hopes were set for were not a plot of land in the Middle East. They were an eternal home of a God who is the builder and creator of a lasting home for his people, a forever home, an, a, a, a new heavens and new earth, if you want to use that terminology. But it's not enough just for us to say heaven is our comfort. What is heaven like? Well, he tells us here, right? My father's house has many rooms. 
Now, to say it has many rooms is not to say, and I've heard people say this before, that you're getting your own little, you're going to get your own little mansion on your own plot of, you know, 100 acres in the middle of nowhere, and you're going to be so far away from everyone because I finally get to be alone, right? Like, that's not, that God doesn't have a mansion for you. He has a mansion with many rooms in it. What is that telling us? That God has plenty of room for you and me. He has a home that's big enough for all of us. Let's go back to Christmas for a second. One of the things that I always have loved and hoped that one day we can have, if the Lord allows it, and if he doesn't, that's fine, but to have a home that when my kids grow up and they have their own families and have their own grandkids, that we have a home where they can come home for Christmas or during the summer and they can, they can kids can bunk out the house, grandkids can bunk out the house and we can just have everyone home, right? I mean, I think everyone who's in that stage of life gets this, right? You want that feeling, you want that experience. But that feeling and experience is realized in God. That he actually does have that home, and it's big enough for all of us. It's big enough for all sorts of believers with all sorts of room, whether, you're, whether it's for great saints or for weak saints. That even the feeblest child of God does not need to fear whether there's room enough for him or her. None will be shut out but the people who are impenitent sinners, who just refuse to bow their knee to Christ. Now, you might be thinking, okay, great, this sounds like a great dormitory that we're going to go live in, <laughs> right? Like camp, if, if you've been to camp with me, i got some youth, former youth in here, like we've been to camp and it's not the flashiest things in the world to go sleep in bunks and that have been up for a while and you never know what you're going to crawl up in your bed at night and things like that. That's not the mansion of God. It's not a monk's quarters. It's not a broom closet as R.C. Sproul says. It's actually more like Suite 5000 at the Mandarin Oriental Hotel in New York. Let me, explain, let me kind of explain to you what this is. It is a $36,000 per night hotel room. It has 3,300 square feet. It has panoramic views around the city. And, and, and if you think I'm making this too like American, just understand that the mansion here isn't purposeful. Like this is the kind of suite we're gonna be given, but we're all gonna be in the same house. It's not gonna be a separated families. It's gonna be one family in the same house with more than enough room for us to enjoy eternity. Now again, that's figurative. Okay, but the reality is that's what we should be likening what Jesus is saying here. It's, it's more, what's more in view here is sweet 5,000 for that home we have in heaven. See, Christ is giving us this home and preparing this home for us so that he can be present with us for eternity. That he's not content to dwell without the people that he has secured and elected for himself and given salvation that we won't be alone and neglected in this home. Maybe that's where you felt at different times in your life, different seasons of your life. This is not the home where you will experience that. Christ, our elder brother, our savior, our redeemer, who loves us and gives himself up for us, shall be in the midst of us forever and ever and ever. That is heaven. That is eternity. That is joy. That is comfort. 
And so in the midst of our troubled hearts, again, we look back to the cross constantly, to the resurrection, and we look forward to the home that Jesus is making for us, providing for us. Now, because that's true, then I think we have, as we said in Burl's song, a cup of cheer that we can continue to drink throughout the year. I like that, I like that phrase, like, drink a cup of cheer, right? It says here, if it were not so, verse, at the end of verse 2, would I have come again and, well, uh, I'm sorry, would I have told you that I've come to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and I will take you to myself, that where I am you may be also. See, our evil hearts, our broken hearts, our, our sin-filled hearts would have us constantly disbelieve this truth. To rob us of the sureness of our faith, to rob us of the comfort of heaven, this is what our sin proclivity does right now and will do until Jesus returns. The battle rages in all of us, right? I mean, we all struggle with different degrees of whether we can believe all of this is actually true or not, or, 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 or am I good enough to be admitted to heaven? But again, it takes us back to that stanza, right? Girl stanza, right? Have a holly jolly Christmas. It's the best time of year, whether or not we have snow or not, but let's have a cup of cheer. And as, as and we think about that whole song and try to tie all this together, we understand as Christians that we have something to be cheerful about. We, as we simultaneously drink the bitter cup of troubled times, we can also drink the, 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 the sweet cup of grace and cheer as we wait on Christ to return. And he gives us reasons why? The first cup of cheer is, I go to prayer, prepare a place for you. We've already talked about the place itself, but this is actually God doing that for you and me. Those of us who put our faith in Christ, they, there is a prepared place for God's prepared people. He's prepared a people for himself through the work of Jesus, and he's now preparing a place. He's prepared a place for us. He's making a home ready for his true beloved. None can stop us from going home. None can tell us and say that we have no part in this home. All the attacks of Satan, all the attacks of the evil one to say you're not worthy, they can't stop us. Christ has prepared this both for us as our home. Why? Because we say often here, he's our federal head. Federal head means he's our main head. Like before we met Christ, we were under the federal head of Adam, right? His sin and his brokenness, and, and, and we were deserving of God's wrath. But because now we are in Christ, we live under the federal head of Christ. He's our representative, and he has taken possession of us as his people. And he promises, at Romans 8, to take us all the way home. All the way home. You might find yourself getting off the wrong exit every so often. I have certainly found myself in these places. But I can assure you Christ is going to make sure you get all the way home. He's preparing a place for you. Christ carries our names with him. And he assures us that we will make it there. That's our first cup of cheer. That's something we can drink of right now. As we wait for Jesus to come. We can wait right now for that. And drink of that right now. But here's the second cup of cheer. I will come again and receive you to myself. I will receive you to myself. 
Yeah, I think we got a candle here that's going to cause us some problems here. Thank you, Ben. I will come again and receive you to myself. I hope this is plain, but Christ doesn't wait for us to come to him. He comes to get us. So he's come in, in his perfect life to die a perfect death so that we would not have to experience the wrath of God. And in his resurrection, we have perfect new life. But now we wait on his return, and there's going to be a perfect return where he will come back and he will get us and bring us all the way home. Christ knows our needs, even right now. He's not indifferent to them. He's not aloof to them. He's going to come home and get us, come back and get us. See, I, as a parent, I'm keenly aware of the many times I miss the opportunity to meet my kids' needs or my wife's needs. There's a need there, and they're crying out for that need, and me and my goofiness will miss the opportunity to meet that need, whether it's longing for love or longing for a hug or longing for a, just to hang out and play risk all day, as we did yesterday. Sometimes I miss those opportunities because, well, I'm in my own world. But that's not who Jesus is. Jesus is never going to leave us alone. He is the one who raises us from the grave and escorts us all the way to our heavenly home. He enters into the very darkness in which consumes us, and he assures us that that darkness does not overcome the light. That is who we all have. And so as we kind of land the plane for the morning, I just want to consider for a second, one, that this comfort and this cheer for our troubled hearts is multidirectional, right? It's always looking back and it's always looking forward. You're always looking back to what Christ has accomplished, his ultimate, that he, as we will do in the Lord's Supper here this morning, remembering that who drank the bitter cup? Christ did. So in the midst of your bitterness and the bitter situations that you find yourself in, the bitter troubled hearts that you experience on a daily basis, you've got to understand that Christ drank the bitter cup of all time and all places for all sin and all times. That's what it is. That's who Christ is. So there's always a looking back in faith as Christ drank that bitter cup for us. And it's always a looking forward because to a life in, a, in the new heavens, as we see in Revelation 21, that describes as a place where we will have no more tears. It's a beautiful passage. And again, in some sense, this is the last Sunday of Advent, even though we don't really recognize it and play it that way, but I think it's a great place for us to land of our thoughts of Advent. The ultimate end and reason why we observe Advent is that it calls us to reflect on these things so that we can solemnize our feelings. Don't think that would be a bad word. <laughs> you know, our experiences. And it calls us to a serious self-examination so that we might experience a serious hope. That we might experience a serious peace. We might experience serious love in Christ. Let's pray. And let's prepare ourselves for the Lord's table this morning.